I died many years ago. It wasn't the first time, and it certainly won't be the last. I had made it to 83 before I left behind my legacy of children, grandchildren, and a sassy old cat that I still do not miss. My husband Frank, a gentleman and had a great spirit, died about six years before I did. I hope his new life has been treating him well. Seconds after my last breath on earth, I took my very next in the cinema. I looked around at all my past lives with fond memories. They all smiled in return. As I sat down into my seat, a golden retriever hopped up next to me. I loved being that dog. The freedom, the belly rubs, there's nothing like it. I looked across the theater to my right and noticed the toddler sweetly playing with her doll. A pang of immense sadness grew in my heart. My poor mother, watching her spirit slowly die along with my teeny fragile body was the worst. Screw cancer. The room became dark as the screen in front of us flashed to white. Here we go. I watched myself be born. Hey, our parents look wealthy. Maybe I'll try out Harvard this round. Get that master's degree in psychology we've always dreamed of. We all googled at the thought. I was going to be a boy this time. A blonde boy. Interesting. I'm usually a brunette. Something was different, but I couldn't quite put my finger on it. Why were my eyes so dark? Are they always that dark after birth? A shiver ran down my spine. We all sat in silence, patiently waiting to see who we would grow up to be. That's when I looked at me. I looked directly into the camera and gave the most sinister smile, almost as if... as if... I... knew. How would that be possible, though? We weren't allowed access to our old memories until we passed on. The screen turned black and all at once the rest of my incarnations glanced in my direction. Eyes wide, mouth open. We were speechless. Normally, we get to see what our life entails. Why was this different? I gave a small shrug and before I knew it, I was born. Things are different this time. I remember everything, every life, every death, but it's almost as if I'm trapped inside my own body. My thoughts have changed. I find myself fixating on details I never would have noticed in my past lives. Some days I have no feelings at all, while other days I feel everything at once, but on a heightened level, like an itch I just can't seem to scratch. I'm 17 now, and I've done things I wish I hadn't horrible things. Poor Ducky. She was she was a good loyal dog. I remember the soft kisses she gave me as I eagerly slit her throat. I remember the feeling it gave me to run my fingers through the warm blood. Why does she have to die? To watch her bleed, the voice in my head taunts. Ah, oh, that's right. I look down in shame and understanding. I'm at the park right now, watching, waiting, I watch as a child runs away from her mother, chasing after a butterfly. I used to enjoy life like that, back when I felt free, back when I was someone else, something else, back when I didn't fantasize about how much blood could pour out of a single vessel. Now, her, my inner demon hisses. Interrupting my thoughts, I feel my body tense as a young woman passes by. My eyes instantly target in on her jugular. I wonder if humans make the same gurgling sounds like the animals do. 
I think I'll find out. Everyone has that one terrifying nightmare from their childhood they still remember to this day. But what happens when they found out that it was real? When my brother James and I were growing up, our family lived in an old Victorian-style home located in Massachusetts. It was very secluded, with our nearest neighbor being maybe a mile away. We would spend most of our days outside in the treehouse our father had built as we made up stories of pirates and treasures. I was always Blackbeard, while James would be Calico. We were the unstoppable duo of the high seas. There was a special hole in the middle of the tree where we would hide our stolen treasure. As exciting as our tree house was though, I would have to say the best part about our home was our nanny. She was so thoughtful and fun, the best nanny any child could ask for. At night, we would hear a soft humming sound that echoed through our whole room. It would lull us to sleep, enveloping our minds with such a calmness that we barely had any dreams. Only that soft, sweet hum from Nanny. Some nights though, James and I would startle awake, both having the same nightmare. Frequently, it involved not being able to breathe, as if someone had placed a bag over our heads, or shut off our air supply somehow. We would always wake up right before we died, hands on our throats as we coughed away the night terror. The mornings after these episodes, we would wake up to find Nanny had left us a note. We couldn't quite make out the scribbles, but we knew she wanted us to be happy and forget about the terrible shadows that haunted our minds. We would often tell our parents about Nanny, and how she was so kind, leaving us notes in the night. They would usually comment on how feverish our imaginations were, also adding in how we needed to stop getting into the craft bin without asking. We eventually grew up and moved out of our family home, leaving poor Nanny behind. We could feel her sadness as we packed our bags on what would be our last night home. We moved into an apartment together in the east side of town, but we never forgot about our precious friend. Years later, I was going to write my college thesis on my childhood and how I was basically raised by a Nanny. While looking up our family home, I stumbled across an article online written about the original family that lived there in 1915. A mother and father, two little ones, and their nanny. Our nanny. I began scanning the article more thoroughly. I was so excited to find out everything I could about the woman who had helped raise both my brother and myself. I thought maybe she missed the kiddos from the previous family and that's why she took such good care of us. I could not have been more wrong. I scanned the article, mortified at what I was reading. A lump began to form in the back of my throat as my heart sank deep into my chest. The article reported how the nanny had lost both of her children due to negligence of a drunk driver in 1913. Never having been able to properly cope with their deaths, she actively searched for the monster that had stolen her baby's lives. That is when she became employed by the Dobsons. On her journey for revenge, she had taken her time, caring for the monster's children as if they were her own, until that dreadful night when she murdered the two sleeping babies. She had smothered them with a pillow, most likely singing to them ever so sweetly, as she always did. After they had died, the article stated that the nanny 
had written what appeared to be a suicide letter and left it next to their bodies. She then killed herself. The article included a photo of the backyard in which my brother and I used to play. In the middle was the tree our fort had been built upon. As I looked closer, I noticed our treasure hole, only it looked different. It was covered in a deep crimson red that made my own blood run cold. Next to the tree was the lifeless body of our nanny, gun still in hand. I work at a hospital. I don't want to specify which one because of privacy reasons, but it's a big one and one of the oldest in the country. Specifically, I work in the RMI department, short for Release of Medical Information. What we do here is we provide medical records of patients to various people on request, per HIPAA law. If you aren't familiar, a patient can provide an authorization to allow someone else to look at their medical records. Most of the time, it's a family member like a spouse, sibling, or child for the recently deceased. It's the administrator of their estate. We also get a lot of authorizations and requests from doctors' offices and other places as their patients come and go. Being a hospital, we're open 24-7. Since other hospitals are also open 24-7, that means that we almost always happen to have someone on staff that can respond to these requests in case of an emergency in the middle of the night. That's me, the overnight records clerk. It's a pretty simple and honestly slow job. We have an electronic medical record, EMR for short. It was installed a long time before I was hired, probably 20 years or longer. It's pretty great though. It's basically our own internal Google for patient records. We don't even really use paper anymore. Every patient file since we installed it had been digital and searchable by name, date of birth, social security, etc. It really makes the job easy. It's got backups upon backups and it has pretty much made it so we'd never lose a single record. But seeing as how we're an old hospital, we still have a ton of old paper records too. They're all filed in this huge room down in the basement in the pre-Civil War part of the building. No one in my department has ever had gone down there. Requests for records that old never come in, so no one in the last 20 years probably never even had pulled one of them. In fact, I don't think I had even laid my eyes on the door of the old records room until the early morning hours today. I got a request for an old record from an estate lawyer's office that must have been burning the midnight oil. It was obviously non-emergent but it was concerning the medical records of a patient that appears to have died before the Korean War. That, of itself, is pretty unusual. The resolution of someone's estate is usually done with, within a year or two of their passing. I had certainly never received or even heard of one lasting this long. However, it was accompanied with a single court order confirming the selection of a new executor of the deceased person's estate and it was signed by a judge, so it was the real deal. And besides, it's not like I had a lot going on anyways. So I hopped up from my desk and walked down the hall. That part of the building is pretty quiet at night. The admin wing and the accounting offices are all empty and dark. Passing by the front desk, there's not really any signs of life. There's a few souls walking around the cafeteria, mostly for the free coffee that 
tastes like garbage, but whatever. I ducked down a side hall and took the freight elevator because it's the only one that goes down to the maintenance level. It's a bad swipe elevator, so patients and family members can't use it by mistake. The maintenance level is pretty dimly lit at night. There's only about three ladies on staff and housekeeping, and I gave them a quick nod as I passed their break room. It's a slow night, so they're probably just as bored as me. It's kind of neat when you go from the new part of the building to the old. You can instantly tell the difference, especially in the basement. The newer gas lines stop where the old construction starts and curve back into the wall, taking a different route. Like the rest of the hallway, it's made of some ancient wood that has been stained beautifully dark. Despite its obvious age, it's gorgeous and seemed no worse for wear than it probably did when it was first built some 200 years ago. The brass knob turned at a touch, and the door, while heavy, swung open almost effortlessly. I was immediately treated to a scent that was simultaneously woody, earthy, and antique, like a library filled with old books. It reminded me of what old parchment must smell like. It made my imagination picture relics of bygone days. Ahead of me, in dim electric light, stretched row after row after row of wooden shelves, packed to the brim with old folders, stuffed with paper, all neatly arranged in perfect clean lines. Wow. As I passed from row to row, I was in awe of how impossibly clean this room was. I guess maintenance really does their job well. Odd, because I can't even get them to vacuum my office on a regular basis. The record I was looking for had a name was fairly deep in the alphabet, so I had to walk a large number of rows just to find it. It was a common name, too, which made it likely that I had to pull a lot of files to find the particular one I was looking for. Mentally, I braced myself for what might be a long night. My suspicions were soon proven correct. There must be a million James Smiths in America. It wasn't until I had ruled out a 20 individual records that I had figured out that something was wrong. And that's why I'm writing this, so you can know what I know now. The first several ones I ruled out were simple. Wrong date of birth, wrong social security number, wrong date of death, the usual stuff. But as I continued onwards, I noticed little things. Impossible things. This James Smith has a birth date of March 5th, 1735. That's before the hospital was even built, I thought to myself. This James Smith has a birth date of June 14th, 1657. That's before this was even a country. This James Smith has a birth date of the third day of September and the year of our Lord, 1461. That's before this was even the New World. I thought it was an elaborate prank for a while. I thought it was a hoax. Someone was pulling a fast one on me. I laughed nervously to the room and the pile of papers around me. I started looking around for cameras. <laughs> Good one, I said out loud. Very funny. Then I came across one with the time of death declared at 1326 hours on Tuesday, January 7th, 2020. That's ridiculous. Very, very funny, 
I tried to cover up the growling nervousness in my voice. Okay, fine. Whoever did this couldn't have possibly done it for everyone. I went to the next row and pulled a file at random. Smith, Jan, K. Born. April 5th, 2022. I spun around and grabbed another file. Smith, Jane, Rebecca. Born March 2nd, 1679. Not possible. I could feel my mouth going dry. I shoved the two files back into place with shaky hands and walked down to the T-section. No one would possibly place that many files for a prank, right? Thomas Aaron B. 7-23-2023 Thomas Aaron B. 9-11-2001 Thomas Aaron B. 2-4-13-12 This is a perfectly reasonable, logical explanation for this. My mind was reeling, but... What? I left that row and wandered down several other intersecting rows blankly as my mind raced. Impossible dates, impossible scenarios. How is there a medical record here of someone who died very obviously some other place and some other time? It's completely logically impossible. It's completely logically impossible. Okay, uh, so people from all over, from dates all over the calendar, maybe try someone famous. I raced to the H section, listening to the strange echoing sound that my footsteps made on the wooden floor. I did a report on him when I was still in school. I own every album, I watched every documentary, I dressed like him for Halloween last year. I know as much as you can possibly know about him. There is no conceivable reason he should have a medical record here. I dashed down the long row labeled HIN and thumbed through tabs as quickly as I could until... James Marshall Hendrix. Date of birth, November 27th, 1942. Date of death, September 18th, 1970, at St. Mary's Hospital, Kensington, London, England. This should not be here. The file fell from my hands. Why is this here? Papers scattered across the floor, papers that didn't belong in this building. I could see his death certificate. I could see the doctor's signature. Impossible. On July 15th, 2005, my father died in front of me of a brain aneurysm. In our family home halfway across the country, I am certain he's never been in this building his entire life. But his file is here. The truth is sinking in. Everyone that's ever lived or is living or is ever going to live, their files are somehow impossibly in this room. Everything about their medical history, their birth, their vaccination records, their regular checkups, their illnesses, their cause of death, everything. Even if it hasn't happened yet. I've been in here for hours now. I must have looked at 10,000 files. I, I don't know how. It's impossible. Yet in front of my eyes and all around me, here it is. A complete record of humanity. Everyone you've ever known, met, hated, or loved. There are names in here that are in different alphabets. There are dates in here that are not even on our calendar. There are places listed that I've never heard of. Your record is somewhere in here too, and so is mine. Everyone you'll ever know, all that have come before you, and all that ever will be, they're all here. This is impossible, except it's not. Only one more problem. Where's the door?
My grandfather grew up on a chicken farm outside of Poland. He passed away a few years ago at the age of 82, a few days before his passing on. Due to an aggressive form of stomach cancer, he sat me down next to him in his old rocking chair and said in his familiar Polish accent. After I took the boat to New York, I promised to leave this story behind. He didn't look up as he spoke to me, simply staring into his cup of black coffee. It's been 70 years, and I must tell someone before I meet God. I was in a small, quaint, empty town, which despite the Nazi occupation, still functioned. We lived in this two-bedroom farmhouse, my father, mother, and my brothers, Michael and Igor. I'm sorry you never got to meet any of them. Anyway, Michael and Igor were twins, identical twins actually. And we had heard rumors of the Nazi fascination with identical twins. This forced us, and we already lived in a secluded part of the countryside in the last occupied house in the town, to be even more reserved. In order to not go into the occupied towns, we basically ate only chicken and eggs for every meal, and whatever mama could gather from the garden. It was lonely, but we survived. The only two things which were really hard on me were the fact that I had to sleep in the basement due to Michael and Igor being toddlers. They required my father and mother's attention. The basement was cold, with only a small window and moonlight was the only light I got. Because of this, I always delayed going down there until I was absolutely exhausted, so I wouldn't have to lie there awake. On the nights that I couldn't manage to sleep, I would look out of the window, which gave me a small view of the garden and the large abandoned water well. This was my daily activity throughout those lonely war-torn nights. In general, it was boring and uneventful, but occasionally I would catch a glimpse of a family or even just a man or two lovers sneaking their way through our garden up to the front door. They always looked rushed and frightened and sometimes wore tattered uniforms. What would follow were horrible sounds of banging on the door to whoever lived here to open up, followed by an argument between my father and mother over whether we should let them in, who moved in the chair to adjust himself. You see, son, we didn't know it, well, I at least didn't, that we lived fairly close to the Auschwitz concentration camp, and those people were escapees. Well, did your father let them in? I asked impatiently. No, he said. It would have been a death sentence for them as well as for us. The Nazis didn't like Poles, but they tolerated us, and it was easier to hide Michael or Igor than an entire family. My father did what he had to do in order to keep his family alive. As the war went on, less and less people began showing up in the middle of the night. Only our chicken and vegetables began to disappear. Losing our only supply of food would not have been possible. And at this point, my father knew it was probably the scapees, so he built a fence around our property. Despite this, the chickens continued to disappear. They weren't killed. They were simply gone, just vanished from their cages and pens. One night I decided to stay up myself in order to see if I could find out the answer. I battled my tiredness until the wee hours of the morning, and despite the poor lightning and rain, I caught a glimpse of what seemed to be a human figure 
run across the garden. I rushed upstairs to tell my father and he ran outside with a knife, the best home defense weapon we could afford, but we found nothing. No one. The next day we did find something though. Footprints, leading from the chicken cages to the water well. They were made in the wet mud from the rain and they were of bare feet, no shoes, no socks, just feet. My father had mercy on the man who was trying to find refuge and left him a note indicating that he had two days to leave and then he would begin to seal the well. I waited impatiently for my grandfather to tell me the fate of the man. The following night I conjured up the idea to take a blanket down the well to the man since winter was creeping in. I waited until my parents were asleep and I snuck outside, hands and feet clinging to the pegs which were attached to stones. As I was approaching the bottom, I smelled something absolutely horrific, and I pulled my father's flashlight from my pocket and tried to shine it on the man. Coming to realization of just how large this well was, since it used to supply water for the entire town and its families, families which no longer remained. But I found no man, only a hole, a hole in the stone where the wall of the well had collapsed, opening up to some of, some type of crevice. Only two meters wide and three meters deep and tall, inside sat not a man. Inside was a family with only a skeleton-like creature as the only survivor. The light reflected off of his sunken eyes and grayish skin face covered in blood, with chicken carcasses scattered around, a pile of decomposing chickens next to a woman, a son and a daughter, the children who must have been barely five years old, and they seemed to have been dead for weeks. The man, if he even could be called that, just stared at the light, and I stared back, incapable of breaking his stare. I did not feel threatened by him, before he lacked any sense of aggression. He simply sat there crouched over without a sound, next to the putrefying body of his loved ones and chickens he could have only been using as his source of water, as their meat was not eaten. He was empty, devoid of whatever in us makes us human. He should have realized his family was dead long ago, but he was still bringing food for their corpses. He couldn't accept it. He did finally turn his head though, when I shined the light back onto the corpses of his daughter. He stared at her and sat down closer to her and continued to stare. You can leave now. I'll open the gate so you can escape. My father will seal the well in the morning, I said to him. Please leave now. My young voice and advice didn't seem to have any effect on him. At this moment, I decided it would be better for me to just climb back up the well and leave. Hopefully, the man would follow and escape. As I began my climb, I shined the light on him one final time. What did you see, Grandpa? I shuddered. A tear fell from his eye. He had become a man once again. He broke free from the delusion only when he saw the body of his dead daughter, which had been hidden by the darkness. He realized he had been bringing food, not to his family, but to corpses. That night it rained again, 
but I found no footprints leaving the well in the morning when my father sealed it. It's been a week since the program started. A program that I thought would be the easiest way to make 50 gram within a week, but things turned bad on the third day of a project called The Second Coming. 18 people were involved in the project. Eight of us were observers. I was one of the observers and our role was simple. We were gathered together in one room where we were to watch dozens of monitors that displayed everything going on in a makeshift town one created for the program. If there was anything noteworthy going on, we would all write a little note about it. At the end of the day, we would read our notes out loud. It's funny how different our perspective of every event was. Nine of the people were placed in the town as residents. Their role was simple as well. All they had to do was live like they normally do. Food, water, shelter, and entertainment was provided. The first couple of days, I was pretty jealous. Being an observer was downright boring most of the time. It seemed, at the time, that I had drawn the short end of the stick. Last but certainly not least, we had our Jesus. His role was not simple. He was the only one that had a direct line of communication with the people running the project, and they would let him know when it was time for him to create another miracle. The person they picked to take on the Jesus role was a little guy, a bit shorter than average with a body structure that matched that of a single chopstick. He had a squeaky voice and also looked to be dirty, even after bathing. His name was Chad and his appearance was far from impressive. The residents did not know about this fake Jesus guy. They were even given a completely different name for the program. For all they knew, this whole thing could have been one giant sleep study, or something of the like. It's safe to say they weren't prepared for the coming days. The first three days were completely normal. The residents got to know each other. That night, a couple of them even paired up and went to sleep together. It doesn't take a genius to know what they were doing. The second and third days were so boring that I found myself dozing off half the time, along with most of the other observers. The fourth day started off normal enough, but around three in the afternoon, Chad performed his first miracle. It wasn't really anything marvelous, just a simple party trick that shouldn't have stunned a bunch of adults on the first try. But I suppose the people chosen to be residents in this experiment weren't the sharpest group of people. They were all eating lunch when a woman started waving her arms frantically. Chad was face down in the middle of the swimming pool. When the other residents ran over, Chad stood up and walked on the surface of the water towards everyone. A couple of them fell on their knees while the others just stood in shock. I don't really know how to describe the events of the next four days any differently than how I recorded them in my notes. I'll just copy them down here. Day 4. Chad was walking with one of the male residents. Everything seemed fine until the residents suddenly collapsed. It didn't take long for the others to run over to them. Chad stared at the ground for a moment before kneeling down and touching the man on the forehead. Almost immediately, the guy jumped to his feet, good as new. Honestly, I don't know how he did it. This is definitely a lot harder of a miracle to pull off than the one he performed the previous day. Day 5. 
We notice a female resident standing atop of a tall building. Neither me nor the other observers saw how she got up there. We watched in horror as she launched herself off of the building. Down below, a pool of blood oozed around her lifeless body as Chad and the other residents slowly walked over to the gory scene. Chad knelt down next to her and whispered a couple of words into her ear. She opened her eyes and with a dazed look on her face, sat up and looked around at the other residents. The observers and I were in utter disbelief. We have absolutely no idea how we could have possibly done that. Day 6. All of the residents gathered together early in the morning. They were talking amongst each other. Chad, however, was nowhere to be seen. They all looked to be frightened. When Chad finally showed up, a couple of the residents grabbed him, while the rest tied him up so that he couldn't move. They then took turns kicking, punching, stabbing, and spitting at him for what seemed like half a day. It took a while for Chad to die, but he didn't struggle. Instead, he, he harbored a knowing smile on his face. They buried his body later in the evening. Day 7. As soon as we turned on the screen, we instantly grew pale with shock. It looked like a massacre. Body parts were thrown around the entire town. Blood was smeared on almost every building, and on the middle screen, with the same smile on his face, was Chad. He was mouthing a phrase over and over again. I'll be back for you. End journal. He vanished into thin air, and before any of us could react, the room became pitch black. I don't know when I lost consciousness, but I woke up in my bedroom this morning. I eventually checked my bank account and saw that my payment for the experiment was deposited. Still unsure of how I made it back home, I checked my room for inconsistencies. Everything was exactly how I left it, except for a note on my mirror and a small bouquet of white roses at the edge of my bed. Don't worry. I'll give you a couple of days to run as far as away as you can. Love, Chad. The cold was the first thing I felt. Even before my eyes were open, I felt a very deep chill in my core. A thousand spindles of ice sewn between my tissues. I blinked, my eyelids slowly bringing and stealing back the darkness, and with it, the desire to keep them closed forever. I was lying face down on the floor, the tiles speckled with browned blood. I moved my arms to push myself up, but my muscles were stiff, almost too stiff to bend without breaking. I feebly pushed myself up, forcing weight upon deadened legs. I began to wonder why I felt the way I did. I wasn't sure how long I'd been laying there. There was the most peculiar feeling in my stomach, a sort of dissolution. Perhaps I had ingested something that knocked me out. Wait, where was I? I looked around the room I was in. It was a kitchen, mostly everything in order except for the few traces of a hurried exit. The back door was open, barely bolted to the top hinge. Cabinet doors were left open, 
and it seemed only the food readily edible was taken. A knife set was knocked over with a few blades missing. There was blood splattered on the floor in which I was laying. I could see a putrid stream of it running down my shirt, but after a quick search I couldn't find nor feel any wound. Each window I saw had the blinds drawn and the lights turned off as if the house's occupants were hiding. I went into the living room, barely bending my brittle knees into an awkward walk. It was dark, but I could see outlines of furniture well enough. There was nothing out of the ordinary except that the front door had been barricaded with a desk. There was a bedroom towards my right. The door closed, and then a hallway near the front door. The entire house was dark and empty. Except for me. Where was I? Whose house was this? And, and then... And then I realized I didn't know who I was. I thought and thought and thought upon it, trying to bring up some memory of a name, a friend, an activity, my face. I didn't even have a vague... I, I didn't even have an image of my own face. And the feeling of facelessness was eerily disconcerting. Trying to access my convoluted memory banks, I realized I couldn't remember anything other than the cold of waking up on that kitchen floor. I slowly became more and more sure that I'd been poisoned, or perhaps had an allergic reaction. It had to be some sort of chemical. What if I lived alone? I checked for a wallet in my pocket, but found none. I tried to call out, but something was wrong with my voice, as it, as it felt and sounded like my vocal cords were shredded. The only thing to come out was some sort of strangled noise mixed with a, mixed with a pathetic sputter. I spelled out a gob of blackish red blood caught in my throat. I couldn't taste it, but it looked disgusting on whoever owned the couch in front of me. Since no one had responded to my vocalization, I decided to leave. Going to the front door, I pulled the heavy desk aside. It was difficult, not because of the weight, but because of my limbs. My arms felt encumbered by hundreds of pounds, and the rest of my body had been struck by some sort of torpor, like it was being pulled towards a supermassive black hole in the opposite direction I tried escaping to. Trying to grip the hulking piece of furniture was difficult as my fingers wouldn't cooperate, but the desk gave way easily, more easily than I thought it would. I'm not sure how long I spent trying to open the door. Time seemed different. I couldn't tell how long a moment was as I was completely grounded in the present. Trying to recall waking up in the kitchen was slowly becoming more difficult. After what could have been hours of failing, I orchestrated all of my fingers together into a twisting motion and opened the door. The difficulty of something seemingly simple perplexed me, but I lost interest and soon forgot about it. I have heard things that paralyzed, but were there some that caused memory loss as well? I knew of the Haitian zombies that forgot themselves entirely and served whatever voice they heard after they resurrected, but there was no voice to command me. My experience wasn't quite as dramatic, but someone's blood was in that kitchen. Maybe I survived an assassination. 
I'd been subdued on purpose. And I could still feel the results of my rigid muscles. But if amnesia was an intended side effect, what would someone stand to gain from it? I walked out the door into a suburban neighborhood, trying to figure this conundrum out. The sky was overcast and gray, a constant threat of some sort of foulness to rain from the heavens. The wind was strong, blowing various trash and debris down the street. I could see black smoke on the horizon rising up to the dark clouds. Step by step, I moved my desiccated feeling body down the driveway. I didn't see a single person, just the signs of exodus. Front doors were broken down and left open, windows smashed, burnouts from tires throughout the street, and the strange feeling of not being alone. I could sense someone was around. I could hear their heartbeat. I could feel their warmth. I needed to find them. I needed to know what was going on. Someone would help me, I was sure. A too thick saliva began to form in my mouth. A very foreign saliva. I spit a purple slime tinged with red hitting the ground, along with something white. The purging of a toxin. So I began to walk. I made horrible process walking down the street on a pair of dead legs. I didn't mind it though. I was lost in a sort of mindlessness, not uncontent to just be wandering. The whole time the possibility of other people probed my brain, insisting I find them. Walking down a street through the external maze of a neighborhood, I came across a dog, a big Doberman. At first, he caught my attention in an interested way. I looked at him enthralled. But then he caught a glimpse of me and started barking. The barking became louder and louder and I began to grow irritated. The way the dog stared at me, I could see its fangs. I could feel the fury cauterizing my body, crawling up my spine, making my hands shake. This animal was challenging me, my prey. I strode over him, oblivious to the deep growling. The dog readied himself to pounce, and the thought of this pathetic thing posing a challenge was amusing. He jumped forward, biting into my calf hard, hard enough to cause a crunch to sound. But I was so full of rage, so full of hatred, that my whole body was numb. I threw myself upon the dog, wrapping my hands around his neck tightly. I slowly began twisting my iron grip with as much power as I could muster. And nothing in the world would stop me from breaking his neck. He managed to whimper in such a saddening manner that if I could feel sorrow, it would have hurt me inside. So I made it excruciating for the dog finally breaking his neck after his head was twisted 180 degrees. Then I picked his corpse up, slammed it, and started punching his ribcage grinding his flesh and innards against the cement with my fist until just the head and hind legs remain intact, connected together by spine and fur matted with the dog's bloody remains. When I was done, I asked myself what I had just done. I, I now felt nothing. I was calm. I was collected. My mind analyzed the situation and it deduced my anger as a fair reaction, though I had a subconscious feeling that 
what I had just done was sickingly wrong. What if I had a damaged brain? I had heard a story of how a man had a brain damage in a specific area which caused him to fly into a blind fury at the smallest slight. What if it happened to me? Enough oxygen deprivation could cause both brain damage and unconsciousness. Was I even mentally fit to be a human anymore? I needed to find someone quickly. I continued on, eventually reaching the end of the neighborhood. Two cars were crashed into each other, and I walked up to them. One was empty while the driver of the other car was resting his head on the steering wheel. I walked over, opening the door and lifting his head up by the hair. His forehead was caved in, pieces of skull broken off of his brain. He didn't smell particularly good, so I picked him up and threw him into the street. I sat in the car looking at it. I was sure I'd driven cars many times before, but as I sat in that seat, I couldn't figure out what I was supposed to do. I grabbed the wheel, turned it, nothing happened. There were a ton of buttons next to the wheel, and I began pressing them. One of them made a terrible noise come on, and after forgetting which one it was, I left. I was on a main street. There were cars parked in the lots out front of a shopping center, the occasional sign of violence streaked upon the pavement or wall in a bloody fashion. The lights of miscellaneous shops were still on, though I could see no one inside. Automated traffic lights went through their cycles, unaware that they did nothing to serve the people who weren't there. The place was a ghost town, void of anything that might be alive. Then I saw someone. I was in front of a grocery store, the entrance destroyed by a flip car. The person I saw appeared to be a man. He limped, and it seemed like every time he put weight on his right leg, it would almost snap out underneath him. He was making his way into the apartment complex from the other side of the street. I tried yelling out to him, but all I could make was a groan. He continued on to the complex grounds, and I decided to follow him. When I passed the surrounding fence, however, I saw a group of people running up a flight of stairs into an apartment. One of them was holding a gun towards the man trying to follow, who seemed to beseech something of them by holding his arms out. From the look of it, he needed medical aid. And then they shot him. I immediately took cover behind the fence, peeking around the corner. The last person to go in was a woman who made the strangest feeling rise in my chest. I took a look at her as she stared at the corpse of the man her friend had just shot. She couldn't see me, however, and went inside. There was something odd about her. She contorted my chapped lips into a goofy grin. I had a feeling like I knew her, like I needed to know her again. Perhaps she could help me sort out this mess. Maybe I could find out who I once was. But I wasn't going to be able to approach them if they were just shooting random people. I made my way towards the grocery store. My muscles began to grow flexible and I could move a bit more smoothly now. Though the calf the dog had bitten wasn't as strong as my uninjured one. I began to hope that whatever chemical was in my stream was starting to wear off. And that there might not be permanent effects after all. I walked through the parking lot. 
The place was abandoned, though it didn't seem voluntary. Some of the car doors were open, some were painted red. One trunk was open, half filled with groceries and a carton of eggs smashed upon the concrete next to it. Dozens of carts were left astray. The car that had rolled over had smashed the glass doors leading into the grocery store. It appeared the car was resting upon a few people, their blood and organs forced out of their bodies all over the cement. The wind blew. It was cold. I got to the dumpster behind the store and opened it. I grabbed a piece of cardboard and underneath was a small child, face gnawed until it was unrecognizable. I could see the bone of the nose, though the cartilage was gone. There was an ear spat out next to his head. The lips were eaten in a particularly vicious way, exposed and smashed in teeth and purple gums. The eyes had been slurped out, leaving this eight-year-old child staring into the sky with a lifeless gaze. The skull was smashed in and the brain was served at 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit. The body had pieces picked off of it in varying degrees, in some places to the muscle and others to the bone. This was the work of something wild, something extremely mutilating. The child was small enough to be an easy meal for a pack of starving dogs. There was even a news report about cases like this a few months ago, wasn't there? Or did it seem like something that would be on the news? Regardless, I reached my hand into the empty stomach, digging up the past remains in search of wet blood. After getting some, I wrote, I'm not an enemy. Don't attack on the cardboard. The body gave off a foul stench, and it wasn't the sight so much as it was the scent that deterred me. It wasn't decomposition, but there was something definitely wrong with the corpse. So I left utterly forgetting the small child. I arrived back at the opening of the apartment complex. The door the group had entered was shut tight. I waited, not sure how long it was, but completely content with passing the time doing nothing. Then I thought it would be better to see them coming before they could see me. So I took my sign and went to the cemetery across the street from the apartments where I would be able to properly observe them. Night came. Everything was quiet. Not a single car passed. No one walked along the sidewalk. There wasn't a single person out picking up fast food, visiting the grocery store, or renting a movie. Orange glows on the horizon kept me company. Anything that a human being might once do was never to be done again. I lay there, silently watching, alone in a yard full of corpses. I had the same sensation I had in the neighborhood I woke up in, that there were people around. I knew I could feel the ones in that apartment, so I waited for them. The only uncomfortable part was the cold. I couldn't get warm at all. I wished my body would metabolize whatever was in me. I just wanted to feel alright again. I was slowly beginning to forget what exactly I needed metabolized from my body? Was it something bad? It couldn't be as I felt perfectly fine. I had the vague feeling that I should wait for the people who went into the house. That maybe the woman I saw could tell me what I needed out of my system. 
I spent the night next to the grave of Chris Redfield. Then day came. It seemed slow, but I couldn't be sure. My mind was only conjuring up blanks when I tried accessing the last few hours' images. The clouds stayed, hiding whatever might be bright, whatever was left that could be warm, if there was anything that could make me warm again. Finally, I saw them come out, a few, including the woman. I made as much haste as I could, holding up my sign until I caught one of their eyes. It was a man, thin, gaunt, bones quite prominent, like an undead skeleton. He had a handgun, and as soon as I came into his vision, he pulled it up, aiming it at me, yelling out a warning. The other two looked at me, and the woman I had seen gasped. I got a better look at her. She was beautiful, even angelic, blonde hair of a very light color, green eyes, the color I imagined Mother Nature herself might have. I could see an aura around her of a bright white. I saw it shoot towards me, and I was instantly soothed. My leg felt all right. My spirit was healed. My, my being rejuvenated. I loved her, and I'm sure I loved her even more back before when I knew who I was. She looked at me with an expression stunned. The skeleton covered in flesh took a step forward, but she stood in front of him. I held out my sign, and she read it. I could see a tear run down her face. They muttered a conversation to each other, but the man let me continue on. Now how can you trust him? The man yelled as the woman I loved started walking towards me. We're going back, right now, with or without you. And the other two started running back up the stairs. They meant nothing to me, however, so I didn't care. I dropped the sign. This woman, a complete stranger to me, yet so familiar, I felt that if I lost her now, I would lose my entire life. She came closer and stopped. Is that you? She whispered. Yes. I managed to articulate with difficulty. For this woman, I can remember nothing about this woman that I loved. I would do anything. She walked up to me. I extended my arms to embrace her, and when she fell into them, I ripped her throat out. The flesh in my mouth, one second and swallowed in the next. She started choking on blood, trying to scream and failing, falling to the concrete. She was mute, the same way I was. I got down to my knees, making a fist and smashing through her ribcage to get the best-tasting organs. I broke the skin, broke bones, gripped her heart, ripped it out, and started savoring it. I had no idea why I was doing this, as I was now a mere victim of my instincts. This drive took over my hands and jaws. This inherent rage encoded within my existence. I now knew the purpose of my existence. The only thing I loved right now was the way her flesh tasted. The first thing I had been able to taste in so long. It had the perfect texture, the right amount of chewiness, and the blood was a perfect complement. I felt an elation. I felt an amazing high. I'd 
I had never known as I consumed her carcass. I felt a tooth get stuck in a particularly calloused piece of hand, but swallowed it anyway. I would regret this later, if I could still regret. If I could still regret, I might regret that after I had my fill, this woman would get up, only to suffer the same bewilderment and estrangement from reality as I had. I might regret that I was purposely going to let her reanimate so she could do infect others. I might regret the deaths of the others she would eat. I might regret letting the corpses of children be thrown into dumpsters after her victims did the part to spread this disease. If I could still regret, if I even cared to regret, I might regret succumbing to the results of my twist of fate. I am now the plague bearer. I am now the one I used to despise in horror movies. I am the downfall of my former race. I am the apocalypse. And then I began to feast. I walked down the stairs of the safe house. A volunteer to collect supplies. Ash and Leon accompanied me. We made it down the stairs and walked over to the car. All of a sudden I heard a yell from Ash and turned. He was holding his gun up towards one of the dead. It wasn't just one of the dead. It was my husband. The tumultuous storm of negative emotions I'd experienced these last two days had just ended. Ever since the genetic switch within humanity's junk DNA was pulled magnetically, there was no place more like hell than home. Each one of us were now another's apocalypse. One by one, countries fell. The northern hemisphere was hit, then America, then our state. It was one swift sweep, like God waving his hand across the world to clean up a mess he had let grow too big. I knew it was the end. The beginning of that end started when one of the undead broke into our home and bit my husband in the back of the neck. Life became meaningless. Until this moment, now he was back, back from the dead. Not completely, but close enough. My reason to stay alive was resurrected in the form of his corpse in front of me. I could see past the glaze in his eyes that he could remember me. That he had been searching for me. He stared at me. The way he used to stare before, he would tell me he loved me. Ash stepped forward, and I quickly stepped in front of him. I read the sign my husband had made, painted in some sort of red, which said, I-M-N-E-M-E-D-O-E-T-A-T-A-K. His spelling was never very good anyways, but this meant that he was still functioning. And even though he was a shambling corpse with a shin bone piercing through his calf, I still loved him. I tried to stop myself from crying. What are you doing? Ash asked. That's my husband. I told him. That's not your husband. He's a corpse. A zombie hungering for your flesh. He probably walked in from the same cemetery as the other cadaver. I'm going to talk to him. No, how can you trust him? But I had already started walking towards my husband. We're going back now, with or without you. I heard Ash yell, and then their footsteps up the stairs. I didn't need them, though. The only person I needed was him. The man in front of me, the one with the dilated, newly pigmented pupils that were as ghostly as the moon. 
He was missing one of his front teeth, but with the bloody and rotting gums he had developed, it seemed like they'd fall out soon anyhow. He was covered in dried blood and smelled of decomposition. But death was the final barrier, and he had broken it. Now we could be together forever. I stopped in front of him. Is that you? I asked. Yes, he rasped, like his vocal cords had been cut out with a scalpel, and then sewn back in by a high school special ed student with a cleft hand. I walked up. He opened his arms, and he embraced me. The cold was the first thing I felt. Such an overwhelming cold. I opened my eyes with difficulty. Lamps lit the area I was in with an orange glow, creating an eerie, otherworldly sensation as if I were in some reality that never existed until this moment. With as much strength as I could muster, I tried moving. My muscles were stiff, and bending them was almost impossible. I finally got up, though. I took a look around. I was in a parking lot of what looked like an apartment complex. Where was this? Where was I? Wait a second. Who was I? I began to try and recall something, anything from my memory. Nothing came up. I tried calling out, but the only noise I made was a strange gurgling, as if my throat were full of liquid. Then I looked down. There was a corpse next to me, laying face up. I had the strangest feeling that this man was important, that I hadn't known him. He was missing a tooth, covered in blood, and obviously killed by a bullet to the head. He gave me a very peculiar feeling, and anyone who could feel sorrow would have been saddened by this man's condition. So I started walking away. I had an instinctive feeling that there were people nearby, though. Though where, I wasn't sure. But I needed to find people. They would help me. I was sure. for tuning in to yet another episode of Tales from the Bud. Tonight we bring you something special. We're bringing in varied artists and narrators, including Chris Hooker, Adrian Yemenes, Corey Dawson, Charlie Taylor, and Clay McGee. An artist, Aaron Crocker, Ryan Kretsch and Melissa Panth. In tonight's episode, you meet Julie Baker, who takes up a job as a babysitter for Caroline, who immediately presents strange house rules, like feeding a child through a wooden food chute at the bottom of the door, and to never, for any reason, open the door. Curiosity takes over, pushing Julie, and she investigates the Shapiro house, unraveling the horrors behind the door. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy. Feed.
Hello, my name is Julie Baker. Here's a little about my lovely life. My existence in whole consists primarily of working, school, and anxiety attacks. So yeah, welcome to my world. I'm currently going to school to be an IT specialist. To help make ends meet with tuition, I've picked up babysitting. It's not at all glamorous, but I love kids. And it's a great way to squeeze my studies in when the kids generally sleep. I had to find another house to pay the bills, because the family I go to regularly is moving in a few days. I did see an ad in the classifieds for a home willing to pay $500 a week, simply to show up nightly and bring pre-made dinners to one kid, seven days a week. I don't even have to stay. Just feed the kid. I need the money, and this sounds like a win-win situation. I'll schedule to meet the mother tomorrow. The more I thought about it, something just didn't seem right. I've dealt with abused single moms, mistreated children, all kinds of crazy and sometimes hectic scenarios. But this is different. As I said, I could really use the money. And this keeps me from scheduling multiple homes to visit. Also, I'm super intrigued by the whirlwind of weird around this ad. Okay. Nothing left but to make the call. Let's see. There we are. Mrs. Shapiro. Shit. What am I doing? This is so crazy. I should just... Hello? I asked hesitantly. Yes, this is Caroline Shapiro. Sorry for the quick call back. I was just expecting someone and hoped it may be you. She stated with an eerie tone. Sure. Name's Julie Baker. You were expecting me? I blurted. Yes, for the babysitting position, of course. She replied laughingly. Oh, of, of course. <laughs> Mrs. Shapiro, I'm sorry for the confusion. I was, in fact, calling for the position. Wonderful. And please, call me Caroline. The rate is $500 a week, as promised. My house rules are firm and must be respected. Understood. Not a problem, Caroline. When would you like me to come down? Tomorrow would be lovely. As time draws closer to head to Caroline's house, I feel my anxiety rise and my heart sink to my stomach. I shrug it off as new people jitters. I've never been a fan of change, but I'm working on being more open-minded. As I drive closer to the address, my mind fills with horrible imagery. Tall, unkempt blades of grass, broken, rusty metal gates, a three-story home making a perfect rendition of the Bates Motel. At least with these horrible visuals, I won't be too shocked if I'm stabbed in the bathroom. 
I finally approach the home and I'm left stunned in my seat. This place was completely average. I'm talking cookie cutter home with a dash of suburban flair. Nothing to set off any red flags at least. I walk towards the screen door with slightly lighter nerves, but something was still itching at my subconscious. Something was still off. I walk to the screen door with sweaty palms. I open the door knocking three times. Hello. Come in, Julie Baker. I wipe my clammy hands on my jeans and walk inside. Please, take a seat while I warm up some coffee. How do you like yours? Black, please. No sugar? Nope. Just the good stuff, please. Caroline chuckled, handed me my cup, then pulled a rolled joint from behind her ear. Sorry, Julie. Being a mother has left me particularly uneasy. That's why you are here. I can't do this alone. I need help. Trustworthy help. Can I trust you, Julie? She lights one and places the other to her lips, taking a long drag. Of course, you can trust me, Caroline. I'm here to help. May I ask what's troubling you? I pried. She paused, looking through me. My son, Sargo has been sick for a very long time. It's so bad that if anyone comes into contact with him, it could be lethal. Oh, I'm so sorry. Like an immunity deficiency? She breaks out of her trance and makes eye contact, appearing to be looking for an answer. Oh, why, yes, exactly. Immunities. It's what has led to me locking him in his room. I sent his medicine and food through a makeshift food chute under the door. I couldn't believe I was hearing this. This kid is being barricaded in his room. Pardon my hesitation, but... Even if I agree to this, how am I supposed to monitor your child if I can't even see him? And am I in danger to catch his sickness? She looked at me offended, but quickly brushed it off, responding, Look, I know this isn't at all normal, but you'd be completely safe as long as you promise to never open the door. I will even double your rate. Just please, don't go. You would be the fourth sitter to turn me down if you walk out that door. Shit. Money's my only weakness. I gotta make a move. Leave empty-handed and take another job. With less pay. Or take the money. Okay, what do I need to do while you're gone? She sighs in relief. Oh my god, thank you, Julie. You're a lifesaver. Okay, it's simple. I'll be gone for about five hours. I left Sargos's dinner and medicine on a covered plate on the kitchen counter. Slide the plate under the door in about 45 minutes. Then there is another plate in the fridge. Leave him that one closer to 9pm. Other than that, make yourself comfortable. Take out numbers on the fridge with the 20 under the magnet in case you get hungry. Other than that, just wait till I get back and you're free for the night. Without much more discussion, Caroline puts on her sweater and she's out the door. When I hear her drive away, I decide it would be fun to do a little investigating to pass the time. I make my way to the bookshelf, 
Hmm, let's see. Dictionaries, cookbooks, junk, more junk. Oh, wait. Quite the collection on Navajo and Algonquian folklore. A lot of dark stories involved with skinwalkers being the forefront. While some focus more on Wendigos. She must love her fair share of nightmares. Enough snooping for now. I think it's time to feed Sargo. I make my way to the kitchen and I grab his plate, which appeared to be just a rare flank steak and no medicine in sight. Maybe she wanted me to cook it up before serving it. I throw it on a hot skillet. As the smoky, savory smell fills the air, I start to hear a faint scratching from the hall. I call the pizza place number on the fridge. Thanks for calling Cheesy Cheese. How may I help you? Yes. Uh, one large pie with pepperoni, please. Okay, well, we have your address on file, so we'll fix it up and have it to you right away. Thanks. I plate the cooked meat and start walking the meal down the hall. There it was, standing before me. A large wooden door with a makeshift food chute at the bottom, held together with hinges and screws. I kneel and yank the pulley, creating an opening at the bottom of the door. I can't make anything out of the darkness. I start sliding the plate under the door, and it's immediately snatched from my fingers. I hear the sickening chews and gnawing of meat, accompanied by the scraping of glass before hearing the plate smash against the wall. This was followed by the most tortured wail I've ever heard. I close the shaft over the gap, but Sargo starts bashing at the door. Each strike sends vibrations through my arms. There is no way that this thing I'm dealing with is a kid. Sargo! I need you to stop! Stop! I yell at the top of my lungs. Silence follows before the doors hit with a force that sends me against the wall. I try to get a hold of myself even though my ears are ringing from the blast. I start crawling to the room beside me and lock it behind me. I can still hear him breaking the wood pieces off the door. I pull out my phone and try to make an outgoing call, but my phone has no service. Okay, Julie, you got this. I look in my surroundings and I notice a house phone. I immediately dial 911. This is Officer Stevens. What's your emergency? Hello? This is an emergency. My name is Julie Baker, and someone's tried to kill me. Please send help! Yes, ma'am, of course. That's strange. The house you are at has been reported before in the event of multiple missing dog cases. What? Yeah, two black pit bulls and a blonde Labrador retriever. He said in a hesitant tone. We never found anything. <laughs> But we've always had our suspicions. Please, just stay calm. Help is on the way. I let out a small sigh of relief. Thank you. Just please hurry. Hey, uh, it's the Cheeky Cheese. Oh, God. It's the pizza guy. Sargo starts dashing for the door. If I get out to help. I'm a goner. 
I hear the front door slowly open. Hello? Sorry, the door was unlocked and... I hear the sounds of bodies thudding and scuffling around. Don't get this thing off of me! The sounds of the growls, slashing, gargling, tearing. It was slaughtering him. I had to do something. Screams were brought to silence, and I hear that monster let out a horrid scream before chomping back into his corpse. The sounds of meaty flesh slapping the floor, and liquid slurping like tomato soup sucked from the bowl sends acid and bile pushing its way into my mouth. Next thing I know, I hear police sirens blasting their party lights all over the front yard. I can't believe it. The car door opens, and I hear two pairs of feet run up to the front door. Hello? Whoever can hear this is Officer Tanner with Officer Stevens. Please come out slowly and carefully. The creature continues feasting on his victim with no reaction to the officers. They decided to open the door, but they weren't prepared for what they saw next. The pizza guy was twisted and torn into impossible contortions. Flesh appeared to be torn directly from his body. Sargo was still stripping muscle and fat straight from the bones, feeding a seamlessly endless hunger. Kid, get off that man and put your hands behind your head! He doesn't respond. Maybe we should call for backup. We got this, Tanner. Follow my lead. Get off the man and put your hands behind your head. I won't say it again. The creature continues gorging on the pizza guy's internal organs, disemboweling intestines with a sickening tug. Officer Stevens fires a warning shot into Sargo, sending him into a frenzy. Sargo strikes Stevens with his gnarled long claws, slicing right through the fabric of his sleeve, pulsing with blood from the fresh wound. I hear more shots before the screams, then nothing. Nothing but the sounds of Sargo finishing two more snacks. That was my only way out. Now I've got to find a way out of this house. Sargo didn't respond to the officers while he was eating. Maybe he'll ignore me, too. I take a few deep breaths before unlocking and opening the door. I slowly start making my way to the front door, one step at a time. The closer I get to Sargo and what's left of the officers, the more sick with fear I felt. My legs naturally resisted each step, but I had no choice to move forward. As I start maneuvering around Sargo, he flinched. Shit! Sargo seemed to be choking. No. He was gagging. He spit up a Rolex, followed by a meaty puree of vomit, before its ravenous hunger had him attempt to eat the slop a second time. I lose it and run out the door and see my car. With everything in me, I sprint for my car before I feel a heavy thud on the back of my head and get wrapped in the comfortable blankets of unconsciousness.
I wake up to a familiar voice. As Caroline's face comes into view, I take in the reality of the situation. Sorry to have to do that. You made quite a mess, Julie. A mess you need to clean up. I said with what little energy I had in me. Caroline, you're not going to get away with this. Everyone's going to know you had something to do with this. Caroline laughed with a wicked cackle and looked me in the eyes before her face started changing. (laughs) You're right, Julie. I wouldn't be able to get away with this, but you would. The bones in her face shifted with a wicked snap, and her skin and hair would change hue until she looked just like me. What is this? I screamed frantically. Why, Julie, it's dinner time. Sounding just like me, she signals Sargo to finish his meal. Have you ever had the feeling like you were being watched? But when you turned around to see, there was no one there? Well, I've been having that issue nonstop for a little under a week now. I live alone in a small townhouse, only one floor and five rooms. I'm a software engineer, so I don't get out much, but I've experienced the feeling even when I'm home. I've decided to keep myself sane. I'd write about it. Well, that's what my therapist suggested. She claims I'm having a minor psychotic episode caused by loneliness or lack of human contact that has caused me to become paranoid. I think she's full of crap and someone's out to get me, but I guess that just proves her point. I spend most of my time in my room since that's where my computer is. I'm either working on developing new software for my company or sleeping, but occasionally I go out have to get groceries somehow. I went out today. I had run out of milk, so I made a quick stop by my local convenience store. On the walk there, I knew I was being watched. I could feel their eyes on me, but as usual, whenever I would spin around to look at them, I'd be alone. I wasn't just being watched, though. This time, I was, I was being followed as well. I could hear the bushes around me rustling every now and then and there was no breeze that would have caused that. I feel like I should say, I do not suffer from any mental illnesses. I was never diagnosed or had any possible signs until this point. I would go to see a therapist to talk about work-related stresses since I work in a competitive environment. It was company-mandated, and I just decided since she was there, I should tell her about me being watched and see if she could have helped. Well, hopefully writing helps. When I got home, I noticed small scratches on the bottom of my door, around the height of my knees. They must have been there. They must have been left there by some crazy runaway dog. I woke this morning to a chill wind blowing through my open window. 
I shut the window every night before bed, so I knew it was closed when I went to sleep. There was this sickening smell that accompanied the wind. It smelled like gasoline and burning rubber. As soon as the smell hit me, I threw up. I shut the window and went to clean up. That's when I noticed the small scratches along my windowsill and across my blankets. I felt sick to my stomach. Something was in my room last night. I didn't have a scratch on my body, but I was still scared for my life. After the fear had dedicated, I made a call to the police. I told them that I felt like I was being watched and about the scratches. They told me to get a window lock and not to leave my garbage out. They said it was just a raccoon or a cat, maybe. <laughs> Idiots. The whole time I was installing the locks, I was being watched. Whatever was in my room last night was out there now, watching me. Was it... was it it? And what does it want? I sent my therapist an email telling her about the scratches and it coming in my window. But she just told me that I was letting my psychosis get the best of me and I was imagining all this. She told me to try and keep my mind off of it so I decided to call a few of my friends over. Playing some games and drinking will help. Well, it, it didn't. The entire time they were over I kept glancing out the windows looking for whatever was watching me. Whatever was following me, stalking me, terrorizing me. They could tell something was wrong, but I guess they didn't care to ask. When everyone was leaving, and I was walking them all to their cars, I could see this shadow darting across the bushes. It was the same thing that's been following me. I hurried inside after everyone drove off. I didn't want to be outside any longer. It started raining, so hopefully that keeps the thing away from me. I woke up on my own today. No open window and no foul smell. Thank God. But there were fresh scratches on my window and underneath were a pair of footprints that were anything but human. I took a picture on my phone just to be safe. I looked through the internet but concluded that these didn't belong to any animal and whatever it is tried to get in last night. Thank God for the window lock. I want to call the police again and show them the picture, but I doubt they would believe me. Plus, I'd have to go to the station to show them the picture, and I feel a lot safer. I didn't leave the house at all, I just sat at home and tried my best not to think about what was very obviously watching me. I don't understand how I constantly have the feeling of being watched, but I can never see what it is. Part of me is grateful, but at the same time my curiosity needs to be quenched. I decided to set up a camera outside. I had an old webcam, so I put it on the fence that borders my house. I set it up to face my bedroom window, so that way if it tries to get in again, I'll have proof to the cops and I'll know exactly what it is. I've had the camera set up for about a week now, and it hasn't caught much more than a few shadows darting around. I haven't noticed any fresh scratches or any more sets of footprints. The burning rubber and gasoline smell still lingers along with the feeling of being watched. But other than that, I think I'm more or less in the clear. The camera must have made the thing stay away. It, it must not want to be seen. I emailed my therapist and told her this. She's glad to see I'm doing better, but says that perhaps setting up the camera was playing into my psychosis. And it may seem to be helping, but not to overreact if it catches anything. 
when I do actually get to see what this is, I'll show her. I was woken up in the middle of the night by my window being smashed. I remember screaming and thrashing. I could feel something on me. The smell of burning rubber and gasoline filled my room. I flailed wildly against the dark figure on top of me, my cries being dampened by its fleshy palm as it forced me down. I shook violently out of panic and sheer terror. I felt its sharp nails dig into me through the blankets as I fought against its immense strength. Due to the darkness and the panic, I didn't really get a good look at what was on me, but it couldn't have been more than four feet tall and it was very thin. It made this horrid screeching noise and then tore back through the now shattered window. I went straight to my computer, tears streaming down my bloodied face. I had to check the camera footage to see what it was. I needed proof before I ran away. I th the video didn't show anything, not until the end. The picture went all fuzzy for a few seconds and when it came back, the window was already shattered. I couldn't see properly in my room due to the darkness, but I could make out my frantic struggles. Then the picture quality went fuzzy again. But at the very last frame, I managed to freeze it and see the creature as it ran out of my room. It must have broken the camera because all recording stopped at that point. I saved the video to my hard drive, removed it, and locked myself in the bathroom until morning. I don't remember much else from that night. Mostly I spent the time shaking and crying and I'm not afraid to say that. I was almost murdered by some monster. The police told me I was some scammer, that I used some internet program to make the video and smash my own window to claim it insurance. My therapist told me to stop bothering her with my nonsense, that if I wasn't going to help myself, then she was no longer going to help me. I know what I saw, and I never want to see anything like that again, so I'm leaving. I don't have any money, but I'll find a way to make it. I've been living fine for almost three years now. I've got a wife and a kid now. My life was finally normal and I was happy. All until this morning when I noticed the unmistakable smell of burning rubber and gasoline. The smell alone sent waves of terror through my body. I never told my wife about the thing that attacked me and I didn't want her to think I was some crazy person like everyone else did. But when she told me she felt like someone was watching her, I knew I had to tell her because it was happening again. I've been wanting a trip to Colorado for years, but hadn't had the incentive to go until recently. The name of that incentive was Darren Sanderson. We had met on a dating site a little over two months prior. After a lot of research, saving, and planning, my room was booked. An itinerary was set. Everything was all mapped out. I was determined to make it the best trip of my life. It was about an eight hour drive, and I thought it would be cathartic to drive in solitude and experience some new things. I wasn't trying to get laid though. Colorado had some recreational activities that weren't as widely accepted at home. A friend of mine, Colleen, just moved from there and said there was everything you could imagine. Cannabis popcorn, gummies, brownies, cakes, lollipops, truffles, basically anything and everything that I wanted but bought in. 
After getting my car in shape and receiving the requested time off work, I was Colorado bound. No animals, children, or partner left behind to worry about. I could enjoy my trip without worries of home. A true vacation. Just me, the open I-70, and all the wonders that Colorado had to offer. Copper Mountain was rumored to be unbelievably beautiful. I was fortunate enough to have been able to travel there while it was still snowfall season. I always had a deep fascination with snow in the mountains. The plan was to drive out in the early morning on my way back home, pull over as I could, and soak in all her majestic beauty. I have to say, the land there was absolutely breathtaking. So many natural wonders that I wouldn't have seen had I not taken the chance. For a while, a slight anxiety crept in the back of my mind about the solitary venture. Now that I'd completed most of the drive, I was thankful for my decision. The lone, open air on the I-70 was just what I needed. The windows were as far down as I could stand, and it was freezing on a level that my body and mind wasn't used to. The frigid winds bit at my face with purpose. They felt the warmth of my blood, wanted to do battle, and I was no match. After good vibrations finished its last notes, I reached my first destination. The timing was perfect, almost as if the Beach Boys were foreshadowing an amazing experience. But no. Darren ended up being a dud, a total bro. The walls of the place were filled with beer girl pinups. First night, he actually jumped when I put my hand on his leg. However, many edibles were sampled. Sightseeing, new strains bought for later exploration, and many deep trips indulged in. After having visiting most of the dispensaries I had researched and conquering the best-reviewed restaurants, it was time to head out. In case of munchies, I had massive leftovers from breakfast place I had discovered. The huevos rancheros was phenomenal. Eggs over easy atop of a gorgeous pile of fried nacho chips and every topping imaginable. Copper Mountain was just barely visible on the horizon and I was already in love. The scene behind it was a swirling collaboration of pinks and oranges as the sun prepared to make its ascent into the sky. Impatience was getting the best of me. She was right there in my line of sight, but still so far away. In retrospect, it felt like I had been approaching the mountain for hours. I kept the peak between my thumb and forefinger. Before much longer, the space was too wide to measure with my hand. Cool relief washed over me. It was enormous. The feeling of my own insignificance starting to grow next to that unfathomable natural wonder. I had wanted, no, needed to experience something bigger than myself. A taste of the bigger picture to remind me of what was really important. One day I'm a little boy playing with trains and watching cartoons. Then, before I knew it, I was 42 and so many things had happened in between. Over the years though, 
The memories got pushed over the precipice of my recollection, like one of those quarter machines at the arcade, each coin an old, dusty memory falling over the cliff. My fear was if I didn't stop to reflect, it would all pass me by. I pulled over and turned the car off. This was going to be an experience to remember on my deathbed. I sat spacing out in wonder for a while, then it was time for some tunes. Following my personal bible, I chose my mountainside playlist, Welcome to the Machine by Pink Floyd. My eyes closed as I rested my head back in the seat. The vibrations of the sound seemed to sink to the beat of my heart. The rocking of the car jolted me out of my trance. My eyes flew open. Percussions of my once favorite song warped, and the beats of my heart were erratic with anxiety. What I saw in the window made my blood colder than anything the Colorado winters had to offer. Off to the side of the car, the mountains had disappeared in a blanket of thick white mist, snow jetting towards the road instantly. I fumbled with my keys, attempting to reverse my car and quick retreat. The effects of the avalanche wouldn't reach me, I thought, but I wanted to be safe. The engine responded with a series of disheartening clicks. The frigid moisture must have had an effect, and a little over an hour was all it took. The siren at the end of the song reached its crescendo, and I felt a shock resonate throughout the car. My head slammed into the steering wheel. Then there was nothing. Only black. I awoke to a heinous beeping sound. Phone alert. The battery was about to die. 3% charge. My hand flew to a throbbing pain in my left temple. Pulling my hand away, my fingers gleamed red with blood. I'd been hit hard. Darkness enveloped my every vantage point. Still reeling from my head injury, I felt for my keys and attempted to restart the vehicle. Same result. With each empty click from the engine bringing me steps closer to madness. Out of everything that bothered me about the situation, the silence was the worst. It was utterly head-splitting. Only my increasing heart rate assured me that I hadn't gone completely deaf. My hands flew to the driver door handle. I pulled until my fingertips were numb. Absolutely nothing happened. It felt like my car was pressurized, trapped in ice. There was no way out for me there, but I was sure I wasn't the only one to travel this road. The county would come out to clear it for travelers and find me. I have no idea how long I'd been trapped in my car at this point. The senses I took for granted eluded me as time either flew or crept by. I couldn't be sure which. The air in the car had become steadily colder, and before I knew it, my breath iced on the mirror. Breathing became painful with each puff as my lungs struggled to adjust. Fading in and out of consciousness, I knew I had to do something, anything to stay awake. My stomach screamed at me in need. 
with each churn of my stomach eating away the lining of my gut. I recalled the huevos rancheros that had been in the car with me for God knows how long. It would be cold, but still edible. I leaned back and grabbed the container. The squeak of the styrofoam was a spike in the silence of the buried vessel. Opening the container emitted a smell that I couldn't and frankly didn't want to place. Ignoring my better judgment, I ravenously shoved the food into my mouth. The sauce that had been enticing was now sour and clotted, the eggs stale. I pushed through the smell and continued chewing without breathing, but my gag reflex convulsed in protest. Though I needed food and energy, the rancid breakfast provided no comfort. My stomach was now like a flower, desperately in need of rain, but then doused in gasoline. There was nothing to do but sit and wait in mental agony. I looked around the inside of my car and made up my mind right then and there. This was not going to be the last thing I saw in life. The snow had to have buried me pretty deep to turn my car into this sensory deprivation chamber of hell. Without many options and an anxiety attack imminent, I had decided to break out a new strain that I had brought for the trip home. Impactable. Upon meeting my flame to the glass, the red hairs of the nugget danced in anticipation. I inhaled in an attempt to push my rising panic away. I had traded my air for pleasure. For a few fleeting moments, it worked. I found myself caught up in the flowing upholstery. My worries were placed with the newfound confidence of an assured rescue. The snow couldn't be this thick forever. Eventually it would thin out, enough for my car to be visible. Infinite time passed. Then the dread I felt before assaulted my senses tenfold. Isolation. A fear that I'd never considered before today. My trip of self-discovery and solitude warped, attacking my spirit like a murder of crows. Vomit spurted through my chattering teeth as my meal turned on me like every evil of the world, my esophagus powerless against it. My stomach folded into a jagged origami of cramps, my panic increasing with every heave. Something had to find me here while I was still alive. Then something happened. I was enveloped in a comforting surge of warmth. It started at my toes and slowly but steadily made its way up through my body. Before long, I was overwhelmed with heat. The urge to take my clothes off was almost undeniable. My mind quickly losing all rationality, a song played through its recesses. One is the loneliest number that you'll ever do. Two can be as bad as one. It's the loneliest number since the number one. 24 hours now, or more. Not that there was any way to keep track. My car was dead. 
My phone was dead. The only thing with any semblance of life was me. And that was debatable. I was trying my absolute hardest to keep it together. But the closeness of my surroundings was getting to me. No longer able to deny the urges of my tested body, I removed my shoes. The nerve endings of my feet were ablaze with fire and desperately needed relief. My throat absolutely ached with thirst and my bladder was stretched to its limit. Killing two innocent birds with one stone, I took a discarded cup from my back seat and prepared my painful member for release. Ugh, the relief of the pressure in my gut was intensely pleasurable. Applying my survival show knowledge and setting pride aside, I raised the cup and sloshed it against my lips. Suddenly repulsed, I let it fall to the floorboards and prayed I wasn't at that level of desperation yet. My toes and my fingers were past the point of mental cooperation, but I attempted to start the vehicle. Nothing. Suddenly, there was a change outside of the car. I actually thought I was hearing sound. The whirring of the tires flew past the edges of my hearing, every sound bringing my heart to life one capillary at a time. The road must have been cleared. I pressed my ear to the glass and recognized the telltale clunk of the snow plow. I was gonna be okay. I braced myself for impact, but it never came. If there was cars on the road, they weren't anywhere near me. The sound faded as quickly as it appeared. Then my heart sunk as resounding thuds salted the roof. I must have gotten pushed off the road during the avalanche. The last thing my eyes saw before my body died would be a death mask of endless white. I couldn't think of anything to do but sit and hope that the snow melted soon enough for my car to be visible. No. That can't be how this ends. Then, in an idea, the zipper of my backpack was agonizingly loud against the deafness of my ice tomb. No matter how slowly I moved it, a swirl of my hand around the bag brought me to my container. The label on it read, Jedi Mindfuck. <laughs> this ought to be good. May the force be with me, I thought. My frigid fingers failed me as I tried to roll a joint. <sighs> Bull it was. The more pus that I took, the more scenarios leading to my death would fade from my mind. Get it together and come up with a plan. If I go down, I'm going to go down swinging. The smoke burned as it filled my lungs. Before I knew it, I was hacking up a storm. Not very smooth for something so expensive. Once I started coughing, I found it impossible to stop. 
I could feel a burning in my face as the loss of air temporarily separated me from my cognitive abilities. I achieved it so hard I pissed a little. <laughs> the warm liquid felt heavenly on my cold skin. My mouth was achingly dry. I did a quick mental search of the contents of the car and remembered there was a water bottle in my trunk at some point. Folding myself until my knees cracked, I crawled over to access the trunk through the back seat and found the most beautiful thing I had ever seen in my life. Cracked lips and tongue yearning for relief. I downed that bottle way faster than I'd meant to. It hit the bottom of my stomach like an ice cube in a bucket of sand. I hardly had time to panic over it before it came back up to greet me. My stomach emptied, having rejected the sudden intake of fluid. It was between heaves that I noticed it. The air. The air seemed to become thicker inside the car, my breath shallower by the minute. I looked to the air vents and could have sworn I saw a luminescent mist seeping out. My eyes followed it as it danced peacefully in the front seat. I ran my fingers through it and found myself giving way to a full-blown fit of giggles. <laughs> it then occurred to me that maybe this pearly mist was toxic. Oh my god. I yanked the collar of my shirt over my nose in panic. The giggles quickly gave way to terrified sobs. God knows how much of it had already been inhaled. I thought maybe it was the Jedi mind bug, but the color was different from the haze of smoke that hotboxed the car. I jammed my eyes closed. When I reopened them, the mist had disappeared. Delirious and out of breath, I struggled with my mind to come with a solution. In a flash of hope, I grabbed my book bag and started rifling through. What I needed had to be in there somewhere. I never left home without it. Ah, okay. My hand emerged with the solid metal mass of my grinder. All I needed was to break the window and burrow my way out of the snow. There was maybe a foot of it at most if I was able to hear traffic. Raising my arm back as far as I could, I smashed the grinder into the window. Nothing. I pounded until my hand bled from the impact. Then, just in the right corner, the smallest of cracks appeared. Repositioning my angle, I concentrated on it for dear life. After the third smash, the window shattered. Glass consumed every inch, the corners of my eyes, my mouth, my neck. I didn't care, though. I was about to be out of this hellhole. Thoughts of tropical winters and warm sunsets filled my mind as I struggled to brush the glass off myself. Besides several shallow cuts on my fingertips, I was pretty much unscathed. 
All I needed to do now was push through the snow. It was becoming more and more difficult to get a clear breath of air. Black squiggly lines enveloped my vision and it felt like everything was sideways. The car got smaller with every attempt at breath. It was all too much. The smoke, the stagnant air of the car, the smell of so much piss. It was all too much. I jammed my fist into the snow outside of the window and instantly shattered a knuckle. Maybe a whole metacarpal. My fist burned white hot and I screamed until I could no longer breathe. There was no snow, only ice. Tears cascaded down my face, forming a puddle on my collar. The once warm urine on my legs was frozen. My hands flew around the floorboards of the car. I looked in horror to see I was slicing open my already battered fingers, but I couldn't feel it. The socks I had discarded earlier were covered in bits of either glass or ice at that point. It was all the same. Both were cold and razor sharp. Wrapping my hands in my socks for protection, I began banging away with the grinder again. There had to have been a way out of there. Maybe the layer was so thin and all I had to do was break it. It wasn't. My arms were numb, my muscles relenting their cooperation. I just had to keep going long enough to make a hole to crawl out of. My head was incredibly fuzzy, and I felt hot all over. It was a terrifyingly suffocating heat that invaded and consumed my body with every labored breath. I almost cried with joy as I felt a hint of air hit my face. The ice beyond was a deep crimson color. I couldn't look or think about the state of my hands. Looking would surely create a sense of panic, using up the rest of my crucial oxygen. There was still the slightest wisp of air coming through so I had to be getting close. Blindly hacking at the ice, my muscles renewed with hopeful enthusiasm. Something hit the ground by my feet. With trepidation, I leaned down to retrieve what I had fallen, fearing the grinder had broken. My screams cracked the silence that had become my universe. After seeing it, I knew that my attempts at escape were over. Every scream dulled the already dark corners of my surroundings. My ears rang until it felt like they were bleeding. I couldn't breathe anymore. The air was robbed from my very existence as I felt myself slip away. My eyes fluttered open and then closed again. The lights were blindingly bright, killing my head. A hospital. My heart saddened a little when I saw the empty room. Though I don't know why I should have expected anything different. 
Mainly, I was just happy to be out of that damn car. I felt really hazy and out of it. I attempted to press the call button on my bed rail only to see that both of my hands were heavily bandaged. A sickening sense of dread and recollection slowly started to invade my mind. I rammed the button with my elbow and a young nurse came rushing in. She told me to hold on for a moment and brought an older doctor to speak with me. Wearing a long white coat and a threadbare smile, he pulled up one of the seats next to my bed and began to explain. Apparently, a driver had seen my antenna poking up through the snow and called the police. They pulled over and started to dig at the snow to free me from the car. That act of kindness saved my life. He said a half and an hour more would have killed me. The driver found me unconscious, and a gray, broken-off finger clutched in one of my hands. Tears were frozen on my cheeks. I tried returning home after many weeks in the hospital, but the mental anguish was just a great. My new home is the Chestnut Ridge Mental Facility. I like it here. They gave me a special pair of earphones that block out all sounds and told me to write this all down as best as I can with my remaining fingers, three gone altogether, along with half of my left foot. My body still feels cold all the time. Inconsolable panic comes during snowstorms to the point where I need to be medicated. I haven't spoken a word in years now. Literally can't handle the volume of my own voice. Honestly, though, even if I could, I'd never let them know. They haven't even mentioned or questioned me about Darren's body in the trunk. I'd like to keep it that way. Mm -hmm.